Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcasts, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Opus Wealth Style Podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe, Managing Partner of Opus Private Client, and I'm really, really excited to have on Stephanie Roden today from uh, Roden Legal. Uh, she's the founder and principal of the firm. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here, Ivan. So thanks for uh, having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to have you on today to talk about a subject that is uh, near and dear to my heart. My, my wife and I are going through it now, sort of the considerations for the contract reviews for residents becoming an attending. Um, but before we start, can you just give the audience a little bit of background on you, how you started the firm, how you got into this particular line of, of, of the law? Sure. Um, so again, I'm the owner of Roden Legal PC. I started my firm a little over 10 years ago, but I've been practicing for over 20 years. When I first started, I went into malpractice work. So I've been working with healthcare practitioners for my entire legal career. Plus, I come from a family of doctors, which definitely helped in that. Of course, when I was doing uh, plaintiff work when I first started, no one in my family spoke to me for the first two years because I was doing all <laughs> of their colleagues. But then I realized that I needed to go to the defense side. And then again, I was loved and favored by my family. And I did that for close to about eight years before I realized that the practices didn't have a lot of the business management in place. And by business management, I mean, they didn't have the right contracts, or maybe they didn't have the right legal entity, or their consent forms weren't updated, or they were treating employees as independent contractors, as opposed to straight up employees. And there were more and more things that kept coming up as I defended them in malpractice cases that made me want to open up my own firm to concentrate on that aspect of the practices. And I did that, as I said, a little over 10 years ago. And now I really focus on the business management. And a lot of my work is focused on the employment agreements, especially for new physicians graduating residency or the attendings and moving to their first job, you know, and making sure that they're protected, that they understand their, the expectations of the job of, you know, what they're going to do and to make sure that they're going to be able to work should they ever leave that job. And that's really, you know, what I focus on um, now in my practice. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important role that you play in the lives of, of physicians because they're so excited to be sort of graduating residency, probably the most difficult part of their career in their lives. And then they get a job or they get these offers and they, you know, many of them just rush to sign the first one that they see. They don't really look at the details and they don't have the background to know where to look in the contract. They're just super excited to have a job offer, right? Well, and then, so. Yeah, yeah, go. exactly. Um, as, as you know, because because of your wife and, you know, with, with my family, it's, 
they work so hard for so many years between college and medical school and residency, maybe even a fellowship before they're actually out making money that when they get that first offer, it's they're actually going to be making money, that they're so excited to just be starting their career that they don't really pay attention to the nitty gritty of the contracts because they're, as you said, they're not taught it. There's no class. They're not given any type of instructions or anything else as far as what can actually be detrimental in those contracts for their future. Yeah. And their excitement takes over more than anything else. Yeah. And it, it blows me away. I think doctors coming out of residency and not having any financial background or any financial education. I mean, it, well, I guess it's a good thing because it allows us to, to continue <laughs> to service uh, physicians, but there's, there's very little training involved. There's very little information given to physicians or for, for residents graduating and actually having some decent uh, exposure to what you know is available to them. And they go from making 70, 80,000 to three, three fifty, four hundred overnight. Right. right. And, and, and it's super overwhelming. And again, these contracts that are designed by hospitals and, and physician groups are, are, you know, many times not in the favoring the physician and, and more in line with the organization, which is understandable. But, you know, that's where sort of you come in, right? Correct. Yep. So what I do is when I get the contracts, you know, I review it and discuss the potential issues that I see that could be detrimental to the physician either during the course of the agreement or after if they decide to ever leave. Yep. You know, and typically physicians don't stay with the first job. You know, I, I, it's a very high percentage. I don't know, maybe it's anywhere between 60 to 75% that physicians or dentists or, you know, any type of healthcare practitioner leaves that first job. So it's really important for them to understand what happens when they do leave. Interesting. Yeah. So it's sort of like two, two ends of the, of the contract, right? The beginning end, how am I going to enter this agreement with the employer? And then the back end of if I do decide to leave, what does that exit strategy actually look like? Correct. Right. Yeah. So there, there's, there's definitely two different things going on when I review it. And, and that's how I discuss it with my clients to make sure that they understand. And, you know, look, there are some times where based upon the language of the contract and either the inability of the practice to change or alter or tweak the language, some of my clients will say, you know what, I don't want to risk doing this. It's, it's too much of a risk and there's a liability and I'm not interested and I'm going to go with a different offer. Yeah. You know, so, and that's why it's really important for them to understand. Yeah. What are some of the things sort of on the front end of the contract as you're entering the agreement? What are the things that you see most often that either require some type of change or some type of negotiation or things that, you know, your clients should be on the lookout for uh, when they enter into the agreement? So the contract is built into different sections and each section has its pros and cons. The, the biggest areas of concern are, especially when you first sign and you're first starting your employment, is the compensation and the benefits. And that's going to be only what the, the practitioner is really looking at. For the compensation, there's a couple things to understand is that sometimes they're given, you're going to make $400,000 and this is a three-year contract. And then you get the contract and there's no increase in the salary. There's no incentives. There's no bonus structure. There's no way for them to earn more money during the course of the contract over three years. 
So it's great that they can start off, but the language is really important to make sure that they're being compensated or increased according to the work level. You know, when you first start, you're just starting your career. You're just building up your reputation. After three years, you're going to have a reputation. You're going to be working longer hours. You're going to have patients that are be following you. You're going to be able to do more treatments and more procedures than you did probably when you first started in the practice. And that should be something that you're compensated for. And a lot of times the contracts don't have any language regarding that. So that's the first thing that you definitely want to look at to make sure that there is something in there. Now, it could be after the first year, it could be a percentage based upon production. It could be some type of bonus structure. There could be language that just says it's at the discretion of the practice, but there should be something that gives them the ability to increase that annual salary if it's not already built in. Got it. The other thing that I look at, especially for during the course of the agreement, is the benefits. The the benefits, the practice can always change the benefits. That's their prerogative. And by change, I mean they may be using Guardian as health insurance and then they decide that they want to move to Oxford. They're always going to have the right to do that. So sometimes the contracts are not going to be as specific as to the type of insurance outside of just saying health insurance. But you want to make sure that whatever benefits that they're getting or they're providing to their employees is listed in the contract. And that can include anything from health insurance to vacation, personal, sick days, to moving expenses if you have to move out of state in order for the job, to a signing bonus, to covering your license, your CME or CDE costs, to covering your DEA. Maybe you're taking a board. Do they cover the the cost of the board, which can be very expensive? So you want to make sure that that language is in the contract. And many times the contract may just say, Benefits will be provided as it is to all other physicians of the practice. And that's it. It doesn't give any explanation. It doesn't give any type of idea of what that is. And when you're looking at a contract, you really have to pay attention to the language. And I keep saying that over and over again, but it's really important because if they made the offer to you that they're going to pay your health insurance, your dental insurance, they have a 401k, they're gonna, they have disability insurance for you, you're going to get four weeks of PTO, and then you get the contract, and none of that is in the contract, and they don't have to give you any of it. Right. So from the practitioner's viewpoint, when they first enter the contract, they want to know that what they were promised during the offer and the interview is actually in writing, because that's the only way that they're going to they're gonna be able to get it. And that was what enticed them to actually accept the offer. So you want to make sure when it comes to the compensation, the benefits, that all that all that's in there because that's going to stay with them throughout the course of the contract. Right. And that to them is what's most important. When you start looking at the back end of what happens when things go bad, that takes on a whole different concept of the contract and other language that you really need to start paying attention to as well. What are some of the things on the back end that you're advising or I guess, let me, let me take a step back. What are some of the things that you are seeing most common that you're, you know, having a conversation with, with your clients that they need to be looking out for on the back end of the, of the contract? So, you know, when you first enter a contract, as anyone does, the expectation is this is going to last forever and this is going to be wonderful and I'm never going to want to leave. Unfortunately, that's not always what happens. And <laughs> right. you really need to understand that 
if you do want to leave or a new offer comes up or you have to leave the state for personal reasons or I mean there could be so many different circumstances about this what are the obligations and the liability that you have when you decide that you need to leave so you want to look at what's called the restrictive covenants and this is where the non-compete the non-solicitation and those clauses come into play and that can have a really detrimental effect on you you being the physician on your next job because if the non-compete says that you are not allowed to practice in your field of medicine dentistry whatever it may be for two years after you terminate the contract for 20 miles from every office location that the practice has that can restrict you from working in an area that you want to work in or anywhere near your home that you may actually have to pick up and leave and travel somewhere else in order to actually provide services that you just trained for you know how many years right i mean 20 miles imagine if you're in manhattan you're, you're manhattan new york is 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 and and all the boroughs are basically out of question at that point right so oh, oh it's not even they're out of question long island connecticut westchester jersey i mean yep. you're going to be taking care of, of pretty much everyone yep. and it's just it's really important that they understand this because that is the most detrimental because the whole concept of them going to school getting their degree starting their job is to provide care to the patients that's what they went into this for and if they're unable to do that when they leave because of these type of restrictions then it defeats the purpose of why they even got this degree right and it's really important that they understand what those parameters are when they get the contract and before they sign the contract you know so like here's here's a couple of examples just to put it sort of more into play there um i had a, a client who was joining a practice by grand central in manhattan and the employer wanted the non-compete to be all of manhattan not just blocks but literally the entire island of manhattan which is i would say very unenforceable <laughs> because right. it's 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 too extreme generally for manhattan or for city you have it in block radiuses or maybe it's at most a mile you know as you start to go out into the suburbs it becomes more of the mileage so you know another example i had a client who was joining a practice up in poughkeepsie and the contract said it was the two counties next door to each other and i can't remember the name of, of the counties at the moment but each county was over 600 square miles wow she was moving from brooklyn to join this practice up in poughkeepsie with her child buying a house enrolling the child into into school and if something were to happen and she left she would literally have to pick up and move into a completely different county and start over again. You know, we ended up getting the non-compete down to, I believe it was 15 or 20 miles from the 600 square miles of two counties. Wow. So a lot of that is really just understanding what it is. The, the employer is looking at it as if we don't want you, you being the physician again, coming in here, building up this reputation, you know, having all the patients love you and getting all the work and getting all the referrals and you turning around saying, you know what, I don't want to be here. I'm going to open up right next door and all the patients are going to come to me. That's the fear. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a legitimate business interest to have it, but it still has to be fair for the practitioner in order for them to earn a living. And that's right. where the balance comes in. Right. Because at the end of the day, what, what matters the most in all of this is the, the patient care. Right. I mean, I think that's that's sort of it seems like that gets lost a little bit in the negotiation because, you know, the patient care is, is most important. But, you know, again, they're running a business. So I understand the the dynamic of not wanting patients to leave them to go someplace else if the physician does decide to go out on their own. Right. It, exactly. You know, their practice is looking for it to be not as easy for patients to follow you know, because they don't want to lose the revenue. Obviously, the practice is going to have other physicians or dentists that they're going to be able to provide the treatment. But a lot of times, the patient will have a rapport with a certain doctor or a certain dentist. And if that, you know, practitioner leaves, they may want to follow them. And a patient can pick up and follow. There's no problem in the patient making that decision. The issue comes into play when the practitioner, when they leave, goes out specifically to solicit that patient, which is another clause in the contract mm-hmm. that you have to be aware of. And depending upon the language, that can also be detrimental to the client because it can last for an indefinite period of time. It can last, it can be worded in a way that really prevents them from doing anything. And a lot of the practitioners have the fear of, well, if I leave, am I abandoning the patient because I was in the middle of care? Yep. You know, so there's all these other ethical issues that come into play that are important for the practitioner to understand before they sign the contract to know just exactly what their role is at the time of termination. One of the things that I found really interesting in our conversations was this concept of sort of tail coverage. Can you explain that a little bit to the audience? I think it's really underappreciated and, and one of the most important parts of the contract, at least the way I see it in, in exiting. I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but I'd, I'd really love you to kind of dive into that a little bit if you can. Yeah, sure. Um, so tail coverage is related to the malpractice, the professional liability insurance. And I'll just specify in New York, there's two different types of insurance. There's occurrence and claims made. Occurrence insurance is you will always have coverage for all of the treatment that you render at any practice, no matter how long you're there, no matter when you leave. And it's typically the most expensive. Claims made is insurance that covers you while you're working at the practice, but should you leave, it ends unless you purchase what's called tail coverage. Tail coverage converts claims made policies into occurrence policies. Without the tail coverage, you won't have coverage should you be sued or there's a claim brought against you after you terminate the contract. So let's give an example, just just to sort of put this more into perspective. A practitioner starts a new job in 2020. It's a two-year contract. In 2022, they decide that they want to leave and they want to go elsewhere. And then in 2024 they have an alleged malpractice suit against them for work performed in 2021 while they were employed at the practice. Mm -hmm. And the big question is, do they have insurance coverage? Because you never want to go without insurance coverage because you don't ever want to pay the legal fees, the settlement fees, a verdict or anything else. You always want to have coverage. In that example, if it's an occurrence policy, it doesn't matter when they left. It doesn't matter when the claim was brought. They will always have coverage. Okay. Okay. Using the same example, if it's a claims made policy, 
unless they purchased tail coverage when they left in 2022, they would not have coverage in 2024 when the claim was made for treatment rendered in 2021. Got it. And tail coverage, depending upon the specialty, depending upon how many years that the practitioner has been out and practicing, depending upon how many prior lawsuits or claims that may have been brought against them, doesn't matter if they were dismissed. It doesn't matter if they weren't found to be responsible. If a claim is brought against you, that increases the cost of not just your malpractice, but also the tail coverage. And tail coverage can run you ten to thousands of dollars that you have to pay within 30 days. So I've had clients who the contracts, basically the practice said, we're not paying for your tail coverage. That's on you completely, 100%. It has to be paid within 30 days. And I've had clients that had to pay about $80,000 within 30 days of terminating a contract just to make sure that they had coverage should a patient actually sue them for treatment that they rendered while they were employed. Right. And and again, it's not something you're ever going to leave on the table, right? I mean, I think, you know, we live in such a litigious society that it's extremely important to make sure that that protected. So you would never, I mean, have you seen anybody just not have tail coverage? No, no. It's almost career suicide Mm. because as, as you said, we live in a very litigious society and unfortunately anyone can sue. (laughs) So, you know, whether there's a, a legitimate claim or not, and just by having a lawsuit creates issues for you. And if you don't have coverage, it can prevent you from actually getting coverage in the future because of these claims. If you don't have coverage, you're going to have to pay out of pocket because nothing's going to cover it for you. And it can be incredibly detrimental for the, for the physician. Is the, are the premiums for tail coverage like a one-time premium? Is it something after every hospital you leave, you need to be purchasing another policy? How, how does that work? So it, it depends on it really depends on the contract. So, you know, you have your first contract and it's a claims made coverage and the practice doesn't cover tail. Okay. Clear Mm -hmm. as day. Mm -hmm. You leave, you buy the tail coverage and then you join, let's say a hospital, a hospital, generally they're self-insured and they have a currents. Okay. So you don't necessarily have to worry about the tail coverage, but you still have the tail coverage from before. Now, sometimes when you leave a job and go to someplace else, the practitioner may be able to, and I have seen it on, on a few occasions, may be able to negotiate that the new employer pay the tail coverage, which then would be called nose coverage because they would be picking <laughs> it up as before their coverage starts. Got it. And sometimes they do that, in which case then the practitioner doesn't have to continue with the tail coverage because it'll be covered with the new policy with the new employer. So it really just depends on the contracts. And again, that's why it's so important to understand because if you're paying tail coverage for one employer, you go to the second employer that has a claims made policy that also says you have to pay tail. I mean, you really want to be careful and you really want to try to limit the amount of money that you may need to pay out of pocket if you leave. Okay. Are, are there any other things? I mean, those were sort of the two big ahas for me, right? The, the tail coverage piece and really understanding and diving into the non-compete. Are there any other common things or things that you, know, you, you generally see that people should be aware of as they look at their contracts? 
I mean, a lot of it is really, look, most contracts have a lot of legalese in them. And, and people, if you're not a lawyer, can get lost in, in what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I look at contracts, I want to make sure that whatever was promised during the offer and the interview is in the contract, right? I want to make sure that that's in, that that's in writing within the contract. You want to make sure that they're being treated the way that they want to be, like that the expectations are being met as far as the hours, the locations, um, the on-call schedule, the compensation and the benefits that I discussed earlier. And then, you know, when you're thinking about should something happen, you want to make sure that the language itself is really black and white. When there's ambiguous language in a contract, that's when you have the most issues. Yep. So if a contract, and this goes for any type of contract, but if the contract has language where if you look at the sentence, you know, so let's just say that there's something with billing, okay? Typically the practices have their own billing department, but sometimes the language in the contract may say that the practitioner is responsible for the billing and providing the coding to the practice in order for them to submit the claims to insurance. Now, a practitioner may not know the correct codes. They're not trained in that. That's why they have a billing department. But if the language says that they're held responsible and then something happens with the insurance and the insurance comes back and says, oh, you used the wrong code. We overpaid you $500,000. You now have to pay us. Mm. The practice may look to the practitioner and say, well, we relied on you. So that's your problem. And I have seen this. So again, you really just want to make sure that everything is clear so that there are, when an issue does come up, you can look at the contract, you can read the contract, and you say, no, right here in black and white, it says X, Y, Z, as opposed to, oh, I don't really understand what this means. This is very ambiguous. This isn't helpful. And that's what you're trying to avoid. So although everything that I had discussed about the non-compete the compensation benefits malpractice coverage are all really important it's the overall concept of the contract also that you really need to pay attention to because if the language is off at all it can come back and it could hurt the practitioner if it's not clear earlier you mentioned something about disability insurance and oftentimes it's included in the contract are you recommending that most physicians get it you know during residency post-residency or I guess, what's your general take on disability insurance in general? So being that I don't deal with disability insurance, as you know, it's one of the first questions I always ask my clients, regardless of whether it's the first contract or not, is do you have your own disability policy? I tend to make sure that they have their own individual policy. Having the policy through the practice is great, but it's not specific to them as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. It's not specific to if they have health issues or they have any issues. And the younger that a practitioner is in getting disability insurance, and I know that I'm speaking to an expert here, that it's easier for them to get the policy, to have the policy follow them wherever they go. If they don't have a disability policy on their own and they rely strictly on the practice or the hospital or the employers, when they leave, they no longer have a policy. And they may be in, you know, they're going to be older. Maybe they've had some now health issues and it may be more difficult for them to get coverage later on. So one of the questions I always ask is, 
do you have your own individual disability policy? And if not, that's something that they may want to look into because it will always benefit them to have a separate policy. Got it. Well, again, I really, really appreciate the conversation. For me, you know, it's extremely valuable to have somebody like you read through the contract, actually understand where to look, where the gotchas are so that my wife and our clients are able to, to go do what they do best and not have to worry about these types of issues, either in the front end or on the back end. So what's the best way for people to contact you if they're interested in, in hiring you to, to, to move from either residency to becoming an attending or starting their own practice? I know those are some of the lines of business that you, that you operate in. So what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, so the best way for them to find out any information about me is just to go to my website, is uh, rodinlegal.com. And on there, it'll be information as far as the address of my practice in Manhattan, the email address, the phone number. Um, you can always reach out to me at stephanie at rodinlegal.com, but going to the website is going to be, you know, the best place to start just to see the other services that I do and to get a better understanding about, you know, me and my firm. Great. Well, Stephanie, again, I really, really appreciate it. I know the audience does too. Thank you to everybody listening. Again, this is another episode of Opus Well Style Podcast. Feel free to click and subscribe to follow us going forward. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client, LLC, and opinions stated are their own. Yvonne Watanabe, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, Security Products and Advisory Services offered through PAS member FINRA SIPC, Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client, LLC, is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 0H44206. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Compliance Approval 2020-11254 expire October 2022.